Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. to excuse me may I have some more we are the foodcast with an insatiable appetite my name is brad kramer my co-host is christine struble hey christine hello brad how are you today pretty good this is uh episode 15 of our foodcast and i know i say this every time we do one of these that i'm excited about our guests but i'm excited about our guests on this episode we will feature my conversation with simon majumder who you may know from his work judging on Iron Chef America and Cutthroat Kitchen with Alton Brown and on Guy Fieri's Tournament of Champions, where I, I think Simon works very closely with Justin Warner. And Simon is also the host of his own podcast called Eat My Globe, Things You Didn't Know You Didn't Know About Food. And I'll talk a little bit about that interview and Simon right before we run that. We also have your conversation with former NFL star Tony Romo. So we can talk a little bit about uh, that and football later on. But before we get to that, I always have fun at your expense, or at least I try to. So October 4th had the perfect amalgamation of national fill in the blank days. And this year, October 4th was National Cinnamon Bun Day, Taco Day, and Vodka Day. And I know you wrote a piece and featured uh, Krispy Kreme's new cinnamon buns in the pages of foodsided.com where you lord over the rest of us. I know you are always up for a good taco and well, the vodka speaks for itself. So October 4th being National Cinnamon Bun Day, National Taco Day, National National Vodka Day. The floor is yours. Well, I, I know you want to talk about that, but you're, you're not talking about what's going on today, which is Rocky Mountain Oyster Day, because, you know, that's always that. That might be on the podcast of food you didn't know about, but probably should. I, I don't know. That, that, but, one, that one eluded me. Oh, yeah, that, well. Just here to add to your list of other random food thoughts that we like to uh, chew on. Anyhow, pun, intend, uh, pun intended I, in, that, in that case. Of course, because I was waiting to see if you were um, picking up on that. So for the people but, who are listening who may not be aware, how do we put this delicately? Rocky Mountain oysters are a... A, a type of awful. From a bull's nether regions. Yeah, it, it, it's just like the <laughs> many parts of what is awful with an O, 
not awful with an A. Although that would apply too. Well, that's a personal preference. See, this is going back to many things that we talk about sometimes, how you don't like ham in certain scenarios and don't give you any avocados. Mushrooms, I think, are also on the list. Maybe some lunch meat. I I think there's a lot. We have two opposite paths. You have a list of foods you would prefer not to have on the plate. And I say, bring it on. What's the worst that could happen to me? I'll try it at least once. So instead of discussing October 4th being National Cinnamon Bun Day, National Taco Day, National Vodka Day, should we just cast a wider net and talk about the fact that October is National Pork Month, which plays right into what you just said and poke fun at me at the same time? Uh, no, let's come back. I actually have, uh, in another day or two, probably have some more interesting information about National Pork Month that we can share later uh, in the month of October. And I'll be happy to tell my stories of the chefs that I've dealt with and pork producers and and those things. But we'll table that and go back to, because if you haven't tried the cinnamon bun stuff there was a lot of them cinnamon bun seems to be like a food trend right now so it wasn't just Krispy Kreme with them doing the cinnamon toast crunch cinnamon bun and their regular one you know Snickers came out with the cinnamon bun candy bar and then you have cinnamon bun cereal I mean it it was like buntastic you know we joke a lot about food and whether it's a food holiday or these fun tie-ins that we have to a pop culture moment, it really does show the power that food connects everybody. And, you know, you and I come from different backgrounds. People who listen to this conversation have varied backgrounds as well. But at the same time, when we all sit down at the table It's something that unites us. And I think that's part of the reason why we all have fun and make this sometimes a little more lighthearted than others. Because at the end of the day, whether it's the perfectly plated dinner that's Instagram worthy or the one that you should wear while blindfolded because it looks like an abomination, it doesn't matter because it sparks a conversation and gets you, has you getting to know the people around you, the person who made it, or even the culture behind it. So, you know, we can all laugh and have fun. And then there, you know, there is a nice moment to be enjoyed beyond that. And unbeknownst to you, that was absolutely on point because one of the things that I talk about in my conversation with Simon Majumder is the feeling that when you are dining with someone, stranger or friend, it is the the universal language. It is something that unites. It breaks down walls. It breaks down barriers. It breaks down differences. And he talks at length in that in, in our conversation. So um, you referencing that without having heard the interview yet was uh, on point. Another thing that I wanted to bring up that Simon and I talk about and you referred to a few minutes ago which will be a, a good segue into the interview. You, you mentioned food trends. And I'm just curious, as somebody who writes as much as you do about food and is engaged with food manufacturers, food marketers, brand evangelists, I'm curious what you think from your vantage point are some food trends that are either good or bad that 
we have all experienced in recent memory or are evolving now as we speak? Well, not necessarily one that you're going to find on the table, but I think the, the aspect that shows how food is not just something we eat, but it's part of pop culture is how every food brand has to have a fashion line right now. And it's, I, I can think of 20 in the past month that have come out with some type of t-shirt, hat, shoe, you name it, where you may not be drinking the beverage, you may not be stopped running through the fast food drive-through line, but you can put that shirt on or wear that hat and advertise for them. So I think that crossover is something that's becoming more and more popular. And I think the other thing is the combination of brands. So for example, today, I was just informed that Grey Poupon has its own wine. Mm. And that is not a scenario that I've ever thought of. Mustard and wine's not, I mean, mustard and drinks, sure. But, um, you know, that type of crossover between a condiment and that type of beverage, not normally a, a, a top thought in my head, but okay. Um, I think those type of things you're going to see more and more of. So, you know, maybe it's not necessarily just that one, but you, like another example, Kellogg's just came out with a new cereal. It's Wendy's Frosty Cereal. So now in the morning, instead of having your Frosty Chino and honey butter chicken biscuit at Wendy's, now you can pour yourself a bowl of cereal that tastes just like that frosty fries not included but as as tony the tiger might say that sounds gross you know, I, but you, if you look at it because even as i was writing that that article earlier today it's a progression six months ago it was little debbie cereal now it's wendy cereal how often have we seen Pringles do collaborations with Wendy's or other brands? So that type of, it's new yet familiar. And I think maybe that's the best way of putting it. It, it, it allows a consumer who's frightened to step too far outside of their little box to take a chance. Hey, guess what? I really like, like Frosties. Therefore, I know I'm going to like this cereal. Oh. I really like the Wendy's Baconator. Therefore, I'm going to go buy those Pringles because I got to try what it is. The same, you know, French's mustard buns, same kind of concept. Just there's so many of them that as things go forward, I think you're for the people who aren't willing to say, oh my goodness, it, this is an old trend, but you know, I, what the heck is gochujang? I don't want that. That's fermented chili paste. Right. That's some crazy thing, but I see people on Food Network and Top Chef use it all the time. I'm not sure about it, but if Heinz puts something like that and says Korean ketchup on the on the shelf, I'm probably going to trust Heinz because I buy that ketchup. Ninety nine, right? Yeah. So I think that I think that's going to be more of the thing because everyone's gotten to the point where global fusion is just normal. There's not necessarily a food that's like taboo anymore or undiscovered. 
think there's too many people watching TV shows and, and looking online. I mean, I, the only thing I can hope something that kind of dies down is the simplicity of TikTok hacks using an air fryer. I would like to see that go away. When you're done listening to this episode of this amazing foodcast, please subscribe. Please like us. We are available on all major platforms, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your content for podcasts, as well as make sure when you're done listening to this episode that you subscribe to Simon Majumder's Eat My Globe, things you didn't know, you didn't know about food. As you'll hear, he is a fascinating guy. I don't know how to word this properly. I wanted to interview him. I sought out the conversation because I was very interested. And yet in talking to him and learning more about him, I became even more interested and even more compelled. And that's what he is as a, as a professional and a food historian and a, uh, and a podcast host. And I encourage everybody to listen to his show as well and subscribe and like it. And uh, just as a side note, we mentioned a few minutes ago that this October is National Pork Month. You could seek out season four of Simon's podcast. Episode five was titled Porktacular, the history of pork. So that is only fitting for the month of October and this being National Pork Month. And from there, let's take a listen to my recent conversation with Simon Majumder. I thought I'd start off by stirring up a little trouble which I referenced in my email when I reached out to you. And that was my uh, conversation on the last episode of our show in chatting with Donatella Arpaia. We were discussing pizza and she said, quote, we would always fight about it in his snooty British accent. I hope he's listening to this because he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, no, she'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I hate pizza. I always have done, always will do. <laughs> is is there a backstory? Her um, well, I mean, part of it, I think, is the experience of some bad pizzas, probably in kind of 1970s and 80s England, and I can understand that. Although there were some very kind of successful pizza makers from the Second World War who actually stayed in England and created some amazing places from kind of the 40s and 50s, and some of them are still going. But I, it's something to do with the texture is the honest thing. And in fact, when I wrote about it, I got into a lot of trouble when I wrote about it in my first book, uh, Eat My Globe, where I described it as snot on toast. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Donatella, of course, God bless her. And I love Donatella and, and she, I, I love judging with her. But, you know, that's how she makes her living or partly in that way she you know pizza is her thing and so i will i will also admit that um my kind of i don't know whether i'd call it snarkiness or not would be because it was donatella and i knew that it would get just such a, a kind of aggressive reaction <laughs> and we did on iron chef america and on next iron chef so we worked together many many times uh, whether it was with Michael Simon or with Jeffrey Zakarian as our kind of cohort, um, we did have a lot of fun. But it was it was as long as people realized it was good natured. Well, and it's interesting because I did ask her if I asked Donatella if you're as snarky off air as you were 
on Iron Chef America and other shows. And again, I'll quote, and she, <laughs> she, she, cre she created a new word here, which I love. Absolutely, he's a true snarkerinian. What you see is what you get. He's an extremely thoughtful person. He's an ex excellent judge, despite his bad taste and not liking pizza. He's very, <laughs> he, he's very witty and he's very snarky, and I miss that snarkiness. I'm going to have to give him a call. Oh, well, that's very nice. I, you know, it's been far too long uh, since I've worked with Donatella. I think the last show we did together was probably Beat Bobby Flay, uh, ah, where we okay. were the co-host on Beat Bobby Flay. Now, that was a little while ago. So, you know, I, I must go and I must go and see her as long as she doesn't try and feed me pizza. We'll, everything will be good. <laughs> I will. will I'll, good. I'll, I'll, I'll add one comment from her and then I'll move on. Um, she she did make a point of saying that she has a better palate than you. Oh, well, that's it. I mean, that's interesting. I don't think of things in terms of better. I think of them as more experienced. So certainly if she was tasting food from a kind of Italian or a Mediterranean, she might have understand some more of the nuances. Uh, and then I would argue if I was tasting things from all of my travels around the globe, you know, I'm talking about nearly 100 countries. So if I was tasting things from India or Southeast Asia or Japan, or then I would argue that mine might be better than hers. But let's just put it this way. I, I have great respect for her palate, so I'm not going to have a big argument. Okay, good. Um, so whether using the word snarky or demanding, the work you've done as a judge on shows like Iron Chef America painted a definite picture of a perceived personality. Yet in listening to your Eat My Globe podcast, that impression couldn't be further from the truth. So I'm wondering whether the podcast Simon is simply the real Simon or a man who's evolved in his communicating through food, or is the television judge Simon just someone who felt that the more critical persona fit the arena? Well, I, I think people are allowed to be many things in life. And um, I, the honest answer is when I'm sitting in a restaurant or I'm sitting in um, a, or sitting at home or when I'm judging, then I can be quite demanding and always will be. But I think we you take your kind of it's as we say, I don't know if you have this phrase in the United States, horses for courses. Uh, and and that is, you know, in certain uh, shows. So if I'm doing Iron Chef America or I'm doing Next Iron Chef, you are talking about the very best of the very best right. in the United States. Now, those chefs, A, have the egos to put up with me being demanding, but B, are also skilled enough to know when they've done something wrong. And I will guarantee you that every one of the complaints I made about a dish on Iron Chef, and same with Donatella, same with Jeffrey, when they made complaints, the chefs knew about it. Right. So, so actually being uh, kind of a little snarky, for want of a word, I, maybe I'm the snarkatola would be my uh, <laughs> uh, definition. Uh, but my, my uh, thought would be that they could, they could deal with it. But if I'm doing a show, say like, Cutthroat Kitchen or Guy's Grocery Games, we're talking about really terrific chefs. We're not talking people who are quite yet at the level, although some will get there, of the very greats because they're at a different level. And so there's no point me being really, really demanding of them uh, in the same way because they're under different uh, constrictions on the show. They're having to cook, you know, 
cutthroat kitchen. Heaven knows what they ask them to do all the time. <laughs> but guys, grocery, they're running around. It's a very different style. So my job is to see how well they replicate or how well they achieve the game that, say, Guy has set them to do. Right. So there I'm, I'm probably kinder. And the reality is in the podcast and in everything else I do, I'm fairly easygoing. I know it sounds um, not on food. I just I don't like bad food and I will never change that. There are people who are passionate about food and the num that, those numbers are like a dime a dozen, myself included. But people who channeled their passion into becoming a food historian like you are far more rare. What compelled you to be begin exploring the history of food and devote much of your professional life to that? Well, I think part of it was, you know, how I came into this business in the first place. And, and you know, people may not know this, but I actually uh, studied to become an Episcopalian priest way back when. And so, you know, I studied theology. Theology is a very wide liberal arts degree where you're studying languages, many of them redundant, but uh, still very interesting languages, you know, Latin and ancient Greek and ancient versions of Hebrew and things like that. But also, so that gave me this kind of ability to study and this desire to study all the time. So even when we're on the set of shows, I'm, I've often got a book in my head or I'm listening to a podcast, a food history podcast or a history podcast in general. And so it's just always been a passion of mine anyway. And then what I also realized, and this wasn't a kind of deliberate uh, kind of realization, but it occurred to me, is that when I'm doing things for the Food Network or for other people, there are lots of great chefs out there. And I cook, and I cook at a professional level. But you know, most of the chefs, if I'm going to be sitting next to Michael Simon or with Alton Brown or with you know Guy, these people are doing cooking at a much higher level. But so what I there's no point me just trying to tell them something about the culinary techniques, why would I try and do that with Alton Brown? That would be a very foolish thing of me to do because he's so brilliant. Right. Um, or why would I try and tell you know Guy Fieri anything about food TV? The guy's a master of it. But what I can do is bring in stories about why the ingredients we have, why the dishes we have arrive there, and what that tells us about who we are as Americans. I'm an American citizen now of seven years, or as people of the world. You know, and the fact that coffee is one of the reasons that the Union won the Civil War or that Wall Street was built to stop pigs getting into the old Dutch city of New Amsterdam or all of these things I just throw in as a little throwaway. But what they do is they make people think about food, hopefully with with more of a consciousness that it's not just something that comes there. It's something that we that actually we has a history and, and has made us who we are. Uh, as Americans or a people of the world. And so I'm fascinated by that. I'm fa and I'm fascinated by sharing the stories of, you know, whether it's black pepper or it's nutmeg or it's whatever it might be. I'm just, quite frankly, I'm obsessed with it. And I'm always, after I finish speaking with you today, I'm going to go on and start researching season eight, which is I'm not going to record till January of Eat My Globe. Right. I'm recording season seven starting on Saturday. I think with an interview, I think that's when I'm interviewing Lou Diamond Phillips on the his, history of food in cinema. And I asked him because he's a big foodie guy right? Uh, and also a very, very nice chap and was very kind in his incredible schedule to agree that he would come on and give me his five top food scenes and food movies. 
for uh, in cinema. Um, and so, you know, it's so it's just constant with me. I'm always thinking about different subjects and different things and wanting to share that. And, and the podcast, as you know, doing you know, your great podcast, and you've interviewed lots of people who I know, like Jeff Morrow and Gregory Gorday and people like that, amazing people. It's a great way of sharing. You know, it, it, this has become the new blogging, and that's one of the ways I started in this business. I was curious if you could give people who are listening to this sort of a sneak preview above and beyond your conversation with Lou Diamond Phillips and what kinds of topics you'll be exploring on season seven so that they know to keep an eye out and for it, subscribe and uh, listen to you. Well, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to do that. Well, first of all, for people who don't know it at all, um, Eat My Globe, I took the name from my first book just because, quite frankly, I like the title. Um, is a is a podcast that I do with the Department of History of UCLA, and so in terms of its historical bona fides, as it were, you know, I'm very lucky to have these incredible people read and check everything and all of that. Um, and and the idea is to look at it could be a a, a person, it could so I've done Escoffier, it could be a nation, it could be a a dish like pho or sushi, it could be an ingredient like beef or caviar. And I look at its history and all of them have incredible histories, incredible histories. And in each one then, I try and bring that both from its ancient kind of usages all the way through up to the modern day. And so, for example, I did one in season six on the history of military rations, which was great, great fun to do. Uh, and you realize actually that the, the successes and failures of military rations haven't changed much from Alexander the Great to the Second World War and Vietnam. Mm. Uh, the technology has, but actually the kind of raison d'etre of doing them haven't changed much. So in season seven, I thought I'd take a slightly different approach. And so in this one, we're going to look more at culture. So mm. I am doing, and it's a shorter season just because quite frankly, I've been so busy. But And, and this is, as you know, when you do these things, this is a personal endeavor and i write them and research them and you know so if i don't have the time they don't happen so we're going to look at the history of food in tv and in that case what i've done is taken four amazing women from tv food history and four amazing men in from tv food history going around the globe so there's some people from abroad and some people from the united states then I'm doing the history of food in cinema. So I've done one, which is more an essay, one of my more standard types. And then I'm bringing in uh, an, uh, someone to interview. I am also going to be doing the history of food in art. Um, and we've, we have a plan of food in art uh, to bring someone into interview, but that still hasn't been confirmed. So it may not happen. But And then I'm slotting in a couple of other ones just because if things come to me, just as probably you thought about interviewing me after speaking with the the blessed donatella um you you thought about interviewing me well i was sent a book by someone who i've interviewed a couple of times on eat my globe professor paul friedman who wrote one of the great books 10 restaurants that changed america and his new book is just coming out called why food matters and he's always a joy to have on the show so i I just said, would you come on? And we're going to talk about why food matters. And the last one, which will be the last one of this season, which will be just before the holiday, is the history of food at Christmas. All uh -huh. the way from 
why Christmas is called Christmas all the way up to how we celebrate Christmas now and the problems that some people have with Christmas, even in the United States, where for a long time it was never celebrated. So we're going to talk about all of that. So it's going to be a 10 episode season. Usually I try to do about 12, but, you know, <laughs> people should just be glad what I'm giving them. <laughs> yeah, take, take the 10 and, and be happy. Yes. And, uh, and then I'm already working on ideas for uh, the next season. In referencing not only the interviews that you've done for the podcast and the ones you have coming up, you mentioned uh, Yale professor Paul Friedman. And the episode you did about his book, 10 Restaurants That Changed America, you talked about a brand that was a huge part of my childhood, and I'm aging myself, which I'll do again, um, Howard Johnson's. So when one thinks of restaurants that revolutionize dining, Howard Johnson's doesn't come to mind. As a food historian, can you share your thoughts about Professor Friedman, including the chain in his list. And I know you've cooked the, the fried clams that were the specific dish that he focused on when referencing Howard Johnson's. I'm just totally fascinated by that. I wanted to jump in your head with that. Well, there's lots of reasons as well. So first of all, um, I think it's about context. So we were cooking for, you know, an, a, it was an alumni group. So it was an older group and every one of them, Every one of them had been to uh, Howard Johnson's to have the fried clams, everyone. And of all the dishes I did at this dinner where I cooked, and I was cooking the Chez Panisse, you know, baked goat's cheese. I was doing Antoine's uh, Oysters Rockefeller. I mean, all of the things here. The one that everyone was screaming over was the Howard Johnson's fried clams. And what it is, it's that Proustian thing of you eat something. And I made it as as... Uh, authentic as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And they were all coming up to me. And these are CEOs of massive companies that donate to UCLA. I mean, it was a big thing. And they're all going, this just took me back to my childhood. So from that point of view, I think context is vital. And, and it shows you that for all of the meals that we have, and I'm lucky enough to have, you know, some of the best chefs in the world cook for me, something simple like that, can really take you back and can really speak to who you are. The second thing is, and I'd have to double check when this was, but people don't know that, you know, Jacques Pepin worked for Howard Johnson's. And, uh, you know, so who would you have? And in fact, I'm, I'm reaching out to Jacques Pepin through someone who I, I met him when I did a show for Ming Tsai and I met how, um, Jacques Pepin. And, and how, how can you have anyone more interesting than looking at how French food came into the United States and Jacques Pepin, or, or possibly, of course, Julia right. as well. But they were, I think of them very much as a kind of aunt and uncle of, uh, you know, of French food in America. And gosh, I wish I would have been able to interview Julia. But um, I'm reaching out to Jacques Pepin. But, you know, he had other jobs when he first came here. And uh, the fact that he was at Howard Johnson, I think is just fascinating to me it's just fascinating i think he may have been in involved in the creation of that dish i don't know but i i want to go and speak to him about that dish um but i think hojo's was also it was ubiquitous at a time so everyone in the country knew what that dish was on the road around the corner here's the place to go the orange root of howard johnson's join the folks who know 
Good food, good fun, kids count too. 28 flavors just for you at Howard Johnson's. Next up. Howard Johnson's is famous for fried clams. Tender, sweet, deeply crusted and golden brown. Crispy, crunchy, sweet as a nut. It also talks about chain restaurants, and chain restaurants are really the Ameri- one of the great American culinary inventions. And I'm not cr- I'm critical of some chains, but I'm not critical of chains uh, per se, right. because, you know, if I'm on the road and I pass the Bojangles, I'm getting me some biscuits, <laughs> um, you know, and so... I, I, it's the other thing about me that might surprise people that I'm, yes, I do expect the best and I have been to the very best restaurants in the world, but at the same time, I love me a hamburger, you know, so um, I'm going to definitely get me some Bojangles biscuits. And so. And I you'll peer across the street and you'll see Duff Goldman at Popeye's having his biscuits. Absolutely. I know he loves, he, you know, and well, that was a great interview. If anyone wants to go and hear an interview of me and Duff, not arguing in the very nicest sense, but kind of having our uh, kind of discussions about baking. I thought it was really fun. And I know Duff was very kind enough uh, to tell me afterwards that he said it was the best podcast he'd ever done. So I was really thrilled about that because he's a very, very smart man. But I think it, it basically, to me, the chains and what came out of the chains really de- defined how we ate in the 60s and 70s and right up to the present day. People will still tell you about their Chick-fil-A sandwich. Look at what happened with, was it Popeye's uh, a year or so ago, two years ago, when yep. we had the chicken sandwich from Popeye's. It sent the world, well, America, into a tizzy. So I still think it's really fascinating. Yeah, I think chains are just an amazing thing to look at, how you're feeding that number of people every day on a consistent, although sometimes mediocre, level. <laughs> not always. I don't say that always because that's not true. Right. And I do, a, I do a lot of work with R&D chefs from the chains, but sometimes some are better than others. Referencing the, uh, the Duff Goldman interview um, that you did last season, um, in addition to biscuits, you discussed your mutual dislike of cupcakes. And, and you also mentioned your personal disdain for r- rainbow bagels. Since cupcakes got really big for a period of time not too long ago, I couldn't help but wonder what food trends, past or present, you feel were the best and the worst. Um, well, I'm not a great fan of fusion in in kind of baking so and he's not going to forgive me for saying this but justin warner i think was one of the people who invented the foie gras donut and i've told him that it wasn't my favorite thing in the world because i just i i did i think i used the words just don't do it yeah because justin <laughs> is one justin's a very very dear friend and one of the most brilliant young chefs you will ever meet and we, I work with him on Tournament of Champions, right. and and you know, and I sometimes wonder if I'm just like the, the yeah, begrudge, yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? Commodionally, kind of, <laughs> old, uh, old uncle to him, and I just look at him sometimes. I just go, don't do it, and because he's so brilliant and his head is so filled with amazing ideas, he's opened this incredible, I mean, proper incredible, would be a success anywhere ramen restaurant in you know South Dakota. Right. I mean, and and that's. Justin going, why not? And it's been a huge success because he knew there was a young market there. So, uh, and the other one was like, 
you know, I mean, we mentioned the cupcakes, which are just horrible and too, <laughs> too sweet. And the fact that I shows you how much I love my wife, that I allowed her to have a big cupcake wedding cake for us because I loved her so much. Um, <laughs> not, not that she'd have given me a choice, but I, I was going to say, if I asked Sybil, will, will you have, would you have had a word in that decision? No, she. I let her because you know she's so wonderful about organising. Uh, she would have had. She'd have had it all done anyway. But um, but I, I you know, uh, she loved cupcakes and and it was very much the thing at the time. But I think it's like a cronut. It's just like ugh, I ate one. It's just like don't do it. Um, <laughs> in in terms of trends, I don't know whether they're trends or just movements. Or I love the fact that we're now looking genuinely at more local food. You know, people are looking at more local restaurants, uh, local supplies, and, and some people are actively doing that. There was a restaurant that I think closed during COVID in Portland, uh, Maine, that literally didn't use olive oil because it didn't come from Maine. It didn't use, so they were using other things. It was called Vineland, I remember, and it was very, very good. And the chef, uh, whose name escapes me for a moment, so forgive me if they ever hear this, but um, they were just using everything local. And, and so that I think is very important. Going to the other side of it, I think Americans, even in the 12 years I've been here and living here, have become a lot less insular uh, about the world, maybe not politically, but certainly uh, culinarily. Right. So, you know, the fact that I can go into a smart and final, which is a you know fairly basic supermarket, but I can go and buy goju chang. Or I can buy a decent amount. Of, I could buy good rice wine vinegar. Or uh, I can go into you know most supermarkets here, and their international aisle won't just be you know bottles of British HP sauce, which by the way is wonderful, uh, but will be things from India. There will be things from you know different regions of Southeast Asia, um, different ranges of noodles, things that you you would certainly wouldn't have had even twelve years ago. And people not just are seeing them, they know how to use them. Now, that doesn't mean they always use them correctly. And sometimes I, I see a Goju Chang something or other, or on, and I just go, yeah, again, no. just don't do it. Just because you can <laughs> doesn't mean you should. But the fact is that we're now beginning to look at these um, ingredients from around the world and assimilate them in, a, in, in the best possible way into American cuisine and create. And I think American cuisine is one of the great cuisines in the world for assimilating and bringing in cuisines. And that, and then that takes me to the third thing, just to mention as well, that I think is really important right now. Uh, well, there's two things. Uh, one is the development of, or return to even, of craft of anything. So now we have, you know, many years ago, I wrote an article many years ago, 20 years ago, where I said America was where cheese go, good cheese goes to die. <laughs> uh, I couldn't say that now. That would be a silly thing. We have an extraordinary craft cheese making industry, not industry, craft cheese making kind of trade in this country. If you go to the American Cheese Festival, which I've been to, you go in the final day and there's 2,000 cheeses all made in the United States, all sitting on tables. And 90% and of them are magnificent. And you see this with distilling and you see it with brewing and you see it with bread making, you see it with butchery, you see it with everything. And that's beginning to come into the mainstream more and more. Uh, and the second thing, which I think is really important and might be kind of cause political conversations, but what I love is the fact that second and third generation immigrants from 
um, you know, other countries, as I as I am, <laughs> are, are bringing their techniques into this country, right. and then there, and then the kids of of say of the the kids of the original immigrants who are American, they're you know American born here, but they're bringing some of those techniques again into the American kind of culinary vernacular, and so. That there are methods of cooking that we hadn't thought about from years ago when everything was very Western based and now coming in from Asia and South Asia or coming in from all kinds of from, um, you know, Latin, excuse me, Latin America, that just incredible areas of food and uses of food. Uh, and I, I honestly believe pandemic aside. America was and is going to get back into being in a bit of a golden age right now. I really believe it. I mm. really do. And I'm very excited to even play my kind of small part in just being there to observe it and write about it. So I want to share your encyclopedic knowledge of food and food history with people who listen to this foodcast that might not have yet discovered Eat My Globe and undoubtedly will after they listen to this interview, but um, sort of the inverse of food trends, I would love to know, I thought it would be a fun question to have you share two or three urban myths about food that people might not realize are just that, myths. Oh, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's, there's a, a few obvious ones. Let's have a look. Well, the very first one is that, that gets used most of all is that, you know, Marco Polo brought pasta to you know from china to italy which is complete nonsense and in fact the story of that actually comes from a magazine from 1923 which was the trade magazine of the pasta extruder association wow um, and in this story they actually talk about if you go and read it i've actually got a link to it on the my episode about pasta um, and i'm sorry i say it in my very british way pasta but uh, that pe hopefully people will understand or have someone tell them what I'm saying. Um, but in, uh, if they tell this story about, you know, being on the ship and uh, blah, the guy who is up in the mainsail who sees the islands and blah, 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 and all of this, you know, kind of Marco Polo stuff was called, they call in the story, Mr. Spaghetti. I mean, you know, it's it's that it's that open that it was a satire. Um, and actually, in in the travels of Marco Polo, which is one of the great kind of travel books to read at any time, anyway, they, they actually, you know, he does mention that he's, he sees people eating a noodle that is quite like lasagne, and lasagne was like a strip noodle that they ate in Rome. So he actually does talk about it. So what he's saying is they have something that's very similar. Well, of course, flour and water being turned into something is not so, not something that anyone can really claim a big bang to. So that's one. Um, the other one, I think, off the top of my head is um, uh, the, the, this notion that uh, the prisoners in uh, New England rioted because they ate, they were forced to eat lobster three times a week or something. You know, the idea being to show that lobster was so cheap that it was fed to the prisoners. Now, the, where that came from was actually from later on in the 1800s when people were trying to tell a time of how their how glorious as as we always do we always look back 50 years or 100 years ago look how wonderful that was then, and so mayors would tell the town about eating something that was then considered very expensive, 
as as lobsters did become very expensive and that's that's a story i do a whole history of lobster on eat my globe and they would use lobsters or they would use oysters or they would use something that had been very cheap and that then become very expensive and so they would tell the story so you will find that story told in Diff many different ways about many different ingredients, but it's a complete um, kind of fabrication. It's a story uh, to kind of show abundance and how well the people had lived in a, pre in a different life. So that's, I mean, those are a couple of really kind of classic ones based on everything that we do. Uh, but what I also like to do as well on the show is to kind of throw in th what I call things you didn't know you didn't know. Uh, which are really great, uh, not myths, really great kind of stories. So I like to tell the story of the fact that when forks were forks were created, or the uh, yeah, the handheld fork rather than a spear or anything else, was created in the Byzantine Empire. And when they brought that into Italy, one of the ladies who brought it in to eat with it at her wedding was seen by all the local clergy and said that this was the work of the devil. So it was actually it was actually seen as the work of the devil. And they actually said, you know, why would you need this implement when God has given us, you know, a knife and a hand? And so they actually said and then she ended up dying of the plague and uh, people in Rome, uh, Venice, rather, celebrated uh, that she was basically taken by the devil for using a fork. And so, you know, it's it's and then the, the man who took the fork into the West or oh, certainly into England, was this one of the great world travelers from the 1600s who walked the length of Europe and wrote uh, back to England saying he had discovered this implement and he was going to bring it back to the uh, England, Great Britain. And at first, again, people were going, why do you need this? This is nonsense, the fork of all things. And I did an episode on the history of silverware until King Charles I, I think it was, said, well, this, this is a suitable implement. And then everyone copied him. So all of these st real stories, you know, I think are even better than the myth. So I like to share those as well. Another one of the recent conversations that I've done was with Phil Rosenthal, who hosts um, Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix. Of course. Where, and he always talks, and I actually have had a couple, I've had the chance to talk to him a couple times in recent memory. And he always talks about the joy he gets from sharing a meal with people on his show as he travels the globe and to him each of the people he meets in his travels and dines with become a friend for life giving him a friend in whatever city he should arrive in and somebody to sh then share a meal with in the future you two have talked about the value of breaking bread with people and the positive effect it has and i was just hoping you could share a little bit about that philosophy of yours and and expound upon it yeah, I, mean, I always think in some ways that it's almost like they used to say many years ago in kind of slightly less kind of me too times that, you know, a sailor had a girl in every port, you know, that was that kind of thing. But I always go, well, I have a foodie in every port, you know, in every city and every. And I totally agree with uh, Phil and I love his show and I've never actually met him. So, you know, it's, um, maybe he hears this and he'll invite me to cook him some food. Um, but I love his show. But I do. I. I, I you you know, we're going to have to make that happen now. Well, we. I. I would love to make it happen. I mean, okay. I just. I think his show is. You know, he's terrific, and he's. You know, he's Phil. So I would love just to sit at a table with him anyway. Um, but um, for me, it comes from two two points of view. One is uh, my very roller coaster faith. Um, you know, training as a priest, 
not realizing that you know that that wasn't my journey when they you know turned me down basically and i ended up going into publishing and and now but what i've realized now is that my ministry for want of a better word and i'm not a new you know an evangelical but just my my duty in life is to go and serve people good food right. and by that have conversations i always say you you can't say to someone i hate you when you've got a mouthful of ribs you know <laughs> It just, you just can't. And what I found is I, I, I've been to nearly a hundred countries um, my, uh, and, uh, and every state in the United States. And I can tell you that I could go down to, you know, and I'm a very progressive, very liberal person, you know, unapologetically, but I can go down to Alabama or Mississippi or, you know, places that I know are much more conservative and I can meet with friends and chefs down there who are much more conservative and yet we can sit around a table and we will have the best time right because your politics it should never be the decider of your relationships with people and this around the world so i have found myself sitting in the middle east with uh people of one faith i've been sitting with in israel with people you know of the jewish faith i've been sitting in uh, cambodia or Jap japan with shinto with i've met people from all different and the thing that they all have is they respect food and they see hospitality as their key right. and i guarantee you that if i took um a gentleman from i don't know dubai mm -hmm. and i took him into alabama and they sat down and they ate food together everything else would disappear right even if it even if it's just for that small moment then they might go off and so part of what i want to do in my life is to i have a mantra that i wrote many years ago and it's what guides my life go everywhere eat everything and that's what i sign on every picture it's what i've just signed on a whole load of pictures i've got to go to the post office in a moment and uh, post um and if i added to that it would be meet everyone and I know that all the emails I get and the Facebook friends and Twitter friends or wherever that, you know, uh, it grows all the time. And, uh, and it's the, it's the greatest thing. It's not about, Oh, because I'm on TV and I'm famous. It's just, these are really interesting people right. doing really amazing things in really amazing parts of the world that I want to either have been to and want to go back to, or want to get to for the first time. You know, we're, we're planning, um god willing with uh, covid to go to bhutan mm. so that's in our we're planning to go to parts of africa i've been to quite a few places in africa but malawi and places i haven't been there and and what i find is from my point of view anyway and i can't speak for anyone else it changes the way i think about the world i you know i realize that in many ways despite all these supposed differences we're pretty much the same you know Boys and girls still whether wonder whether they're liked by other boys and girls. You know, <laughs> parents still care about feeding their family probably more than anything else in the world, or looking after their family. You know, um, <clears throat> grandmothers and all of that still care about, and all the things that we all think about are things that everybody thinks about. And once you realise that, I hope it means that we can just have. You know, it, I think it's a way of us as cooks and phil got it absolutely right once you start doing that they're friends for life right and everything else about them uh, that you might disagree with or question um is 
totally different. It's just it's kind of immaterial in a way. Yeah, it's that universal language of food. Yeah, I, I mean it is. It really is, and 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 you can say that, and it can be people can think it's a cliche yep. until you know I've lucky I've been lucky enough to go out and prove it. I sense in listening to your podcasts and conversations and interviews that the answer, your answer to this question changes over time. What is your final meal? Gosh, well, it does. It does and it doesn't. Uh, so a lot of it is about context. So if I was in a certain area in a certain place, you know, and there are times when something might seep to the surface and I go, well, what I'd really love to do is be in a classic American steakhouse and have a martini and a ribeye and kind of because I'm about to head off a shitload of fries or chips or whatever you want to call them (laughs) and just enjoy myself that way uh, with with a great bottle of red wine. But the reality is constantly now it would be a proper plate of proper British fish and chips. Ah. Now, but again, this is a context. So... It would be coming back from seeing my local soccer team from when I was a kid, which is a team called Rotherham United, which is in the, you have the premiership, the championship, and then league one. They're in league one. Oh, okay. Um, They were in the championship. They got relegated last season. And they're a team that I've supported, as I always say, through thinner and thinner uh because they never did <laughs> never do well but they always do you know uh, my father was the club doctor small club they get maybe eight thousand people if they're lucky go and watch them on a saturday it's in a cold industrial northern part of england where mine and steel and all of that and what i remember is going to see them in in the ground watching them win or lose usually lose until i was 15 as i said until i was 15 i thought their name was rotherham nil because it was easier right but then i on the way home my friends and i would stop off at one of the local chippies you know as we call them we'd buy fish and chips in a wrapped up in paper with salt and vinegar thrown on top and then i'd walk home from the ground which was you know 13 40 minute walk or whatever it was cold wet eating chips, thinking about how much we lost, how well we won uh, in the kind of drizzle. And there was something magical. The smell from vinegar on top of hot fries or from thick chips, the smell of salt and vinegar hitting crunchy batter, the smell of um, just all of that wafting up to your nose as you walked home is one of the most kind of, we talk about Proust again, eating a Madeleine reminded you of, you know, reminded him of X. That smell when I make it now is, is so important to me as a kind of root of who I am as a food person. It is probably the greater, even that my mother's Bengali cooking is part of that. I mean, it's an amalgam, but that smell, because it was, you know, first time really socializing as a young man, it was safer in those days. At nine nine years old, I could walk home, you know, with friends. The first time you really socialized with a group of other boys or became men, and we all ended up going to the pubs together for the first time and all of that. And eating this fish and chips and laughing at who got more chips and less chips and then, you know, all the things that young men do or young women, I'm sure, do in different ways too. Um, 
is something that holds it. So having that fish and chips and that smell would take me from kind of the early days of my life to the end of my life in one fell swoop. That's a contextually, that's a, a great snapshot, a great, a great story. And as opposed to just the usual, I would have this, 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 and this, and this, because I like it. So thank you for <laughs> yeah, sharing that. Context, context is so important for food. Simon, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and how much I've enjoyed it. My very great pleasure. It's been a, a real joy. Your questions are, are really thoughtful and that, you know, I love answering any questions, but it's always good if, particularly if someone's done some research and listened to the episodes and you've definitely done some research. I had to go and try and remember some things. Um, we've been doing it for three years now, but I, I hope people go and listen to it. I hope people listen to this and enjoy it and maybe don't just think of me as being the snarky person who argued with Donatella <laughs> about pizza. Although when I see her, we'll argue about pizza because apart from everything else, it's just fun to see Donatella get angry. Hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation I had with Simon Majumder. Um, I would venture to say having now listened to it and it was a very lengthy conversation he and I had and, and for in the, spirit of uh, keeping our episodes within a certain framework time-wise i had to edit some of the episode and it is very likely that what did not make the air today will uh, will share with you in a subsequent episode down the road because there was no part of my conversation with simon that uh, was not interesting or not compelling and i learned a lot i hope you learned a lot and i hope you are uh, inclined to listen to eat my globe his wonderful podcast things you didn't know you didn't know about food. So Christine, another feature of October is we are now full bore into football season, both college and pro. And I thought it was only fitting before we listened to your conversation with Tony Romo, former Dallas Cowboys quarterback, and now the number one color analyst on CBS football broadcast with Jim Nance. Um, you live in a household with Packers fans and obviously it's a foodie household. I was curious whether you have football food traditions, whether tied into the Packers with, you know, brats and cheese curds and whatever, or just in general football Sunday, football Saturday traditions that you either grew up with or you now have in your family or your household or the boys must have this before football every week um talk about football and food in your house um well it it's not necessarily the boys it's the big boy in the house <laughs> who likes his football and food and i will say when we lived in a different area football sunday was very different than what it currently is unfortunately um the children's schedule gets in the way of some people's football watching. So <laughs> there's not as plentiful food spread for game day, but um, previously it used to be living outside of Chicago, big basement with an 18 foot built-in bar, kegerator, um, lots of snacks, pretzels, beer, Mid uh, halftime was normally everything from Italian beef to brats to something on the smoker. Um, sometimes went with a theme of whatever's going on. I will say 
the one and I call it it's called a dip, but it's not really like it's not a dip you buy in the you know like the you, for chips it's not like hella good or something like that mm-hmm. it's sausage and cream cheese and rotel i know it sounds very appetizing to you right now i'm sure <laughs> but um so it's this it's like a creamy sausage dip and a little bit spicy we change you know spices in it and you serve it with fritos um or you can have it with tortilla chips too, rec- like scoop style. Oh, um, goody. Um, and, but it's like hearty. And every time it comes out, not only for like the men of the household, in my household, but say you bring it to a potluck for, <laughs> for dinner, for, you know, or some kind of gathering. It's the first, like the gigantic crock pot. That's the first thing that goes. I don't know why, but... It just does all the time. And is that something you guys still have occasionally or that's in the past? Like if we're, or if I make that recipe, I will say, you know, think of the biggest crock pot you have, mm-hmm. you know, the, the really big one. That's what the recipe makes with say like a spicy Italian sausage and cream cheese and Rotel and then some other spices in it. And that they'll eat throughout the game and then it will mostly be gone. And oh, I'm sure it will. <laughs> that they would have like some as a snack for Monday night football. But like if you think about say like Super Bowl or something, most definitely that would be a Super Bowl food. Easy. You know, everything else is just, it depends on the day. So I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, other than beer. I think beer is always a staple, but that's a beverage. I know this isn't going to come as a great surprise to you, but that particular dish for one reason and one reason only, and I'll mention that in a second so that you don't think it's just me constantly casting, throwing shade at you. Um, That dish sounds so unappealing to me. And that is because of, the the i guess the base the foundation being cream cheese it, you know what i i will say normally like i don't like bagels and cream cheese that's not my thing normal but with this is more of it it turns more into like a, a creamy sauce so it doesn't taste like cream cheese think of it's it's not necessarily like a bechamel sauce but it's it tastes more like a whole bunch of sausage that has a cream sauce on it. Oh God, that's some. Oh man, you just it, made it worse. I think I made it worse. Yes, you absolutely. See, I'm visualizing it as okay, melted down Velveeta with the Rotel added and some Italian sausage. And okay, that's sort of a variation on the Mexican theme with like chili con queso. The fact that you just made it sound more like a cream sauce or a bechamel with Italian sausage and Rotels. Oh my. Wow. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know what? I really think you need to try. This is one of these things. This is just what we talked about. You're already judging it before you even take a bite. I wouldn't have allowed my six-year-old at the time to say, no. So why? No, but food is supposed to be, you eat with your eyes is what they say. And if I'm seeing a pack of Philadelphia brand cream cheese, and then it evolves into this dish. 
my eyes are telling my mouth not to eat it. If you okay. if you if you walk up to a body of water and it's green and disgusting and there's mosquito, you're not getting in the water. If it's crystal blue and beautiful, you're jumping in. I'm not jumping in this damn dip. But if you didn't see how I made it ahead of time, would you? Um, knowing that you made it, probably not. <laughs> Again, all- I'm not sure I would trust you. I, I think you would be. Um, I think you're like Jessica Seinfeld in my mind, and I'm not sure I would trust myself to eat anything you made wow for fear of for fear of what you snuck in it like ha 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 did you like that brad because in that was cream cheese and a little bit of spam and a little bit of ham and a little bit of avocado and i hope you liked it you know what i think you have now given me a challenge (laughs) i really do i think there is a challenge can i incorporate all of brad's most disliked foods into one super recipe this could be awesome all right and then when you do it we're going to have to a talk about it and and post pictures online well okay so i gotta have spam and your boys have to try it and mushrooms mushrooms no i love mushrooms Oh, you like mushrooms. Yeah. So it's cream cheese, spam, avocado, ham. And I think those are the only ones that we've covered that are on my nene list. Okay. I'm sure that that's only partial of the list though. So, uh, no, I I can't, I'm sitting here trying to think of there's other things. It's funny. I just said nene. There's a a very well-known comic who's no longer with us named John Panette. He was a self-described large mammal, and much of his comedy was rooted in the fact that he would eat pretty much anything, and I am not far off from that, but there are certain things that I just say nay-nay to. I said, oh, nay-nay. I don't do ups. I told him that when I signed up, I don't do ups. I do downs. Sit down, lay down, blackjack, I'll double down. Give me a cheeseburger, I'll wolf it down. Put on a little music, I'll boogie down. Since we are in football season and you did have the chance to talk to Tony Romo, um, let's let people listen to that instead of listening to Brad's list of food no-nos and Christine's uh, mischief bubbling to the core as we speak. Um, you spoke to him recently, uh, another one of your fun interviews, and let's take a listen. So this new version of the hotline this year, it's called Motivation. I didn't even pronounce that correctly. How do I pronounce that correctly? Row motivation. Okay, I like that. So how is this uh, version a little different from previous years? Well, I think this one's more about like, I mean, this one's about, I want to say it's like mostly like keeping an optimistic perspective, I guess, throughout the football season. You know, you have wins and losses, you know, everybody, you know, who's playing and everything. And, you know, as Corona's resident remotivator, I'm uh, here to remind them basically what matters most is how you play the game. and. You know, they can't really control, you know, like I said, the wins lost their 16 game season, but they can control how they approach game day and game days about the three C's, Christine. You have to understand that. And what are those three C's, uh, Tony? You honestly don't know. 
Well, I, I'm hoping one's a Corona because I have that uh, waiting to be opened after our chat today. Couches, coolers, and Corona. That's the three C's. That's what we're trying to unlock. They're game day. Well, luckily I have that in my house, but I'm a little curious because you didn't bring up positive and, and I have a husband in my house when he watches football, you know, if, if the outcome is not exactly what he wants, he gets a little pouty, um, <laughs> you know, it, it can be a little sad. So I'm curious, it, you know, wh what, as a good wife, what should I do to kind of help him get out of his funk? Well, the first thing would be the three C's. You got to get them on a couch, get them some coolers and some Coronas. That's the first way. I think the biggest thing to do is to let him know it's a game and we're going to have ups and downs, but it's a long season. And more than that, I think the biggest thing is how special it is that uh, you get to feel emotions about something. Cause you know, that's a big deal, right? Like just feeling. And I feel like that's cool that you care so much about something, a game, you know, like me with Corona. And, you know, if people are getting pouty, like, you know, my wife obviously does sometimes. Just got a reminder, it's a good thing to feel. You know, sometimes life is hard and everything. And it's cool to be rooting for something. Well, I know over your career, I'm sure you've probably have experienced many different coaches who have like a rousing speech. And, and we've seen it, you know, in movies and in football history and stuff. So do you think that those type of motivational um words kind of help everybody both you know players and fans to kind of appreciate the moment a little more absolutely i think that whenever you have a great coach there's always things they say that resonate and stay with you almost like a parent you know a brother a best friend uh, the words matter and you know we're just trying to you know, we're so emotional sometimes up and down and our team kind of plays a role in that like you said mondays are either really cool or really bad around the cooler at the office, at home, wherever. And I think, um, you know, we're all trying to find a nice balance there, but I keep going back to the fact that, you know, the fact that you care about something is a positive, you know, whether it's good or bad today or next week, but it's, you know, about keeping that nice optimistic perspective, you know, and just embrace it each week that you get a chance to feel emotionally good or bad. And that's a cool thing, I think. And, and you have, you know, currently you're in the booth and you get to do, you know, some very expert commentary on, you know, the games every week, as opposed to when you were playing the games. So which one do you think has an easier outlook to find the positive in it? Is it being able to step back from it or, or is it, you know, having that moment where you're actually controlling your own fate? Well, I always, as a quarterback, I think I chose that position in some ways because you want to control your own fate, right? But there's so many things that are out of your control in life in general. And the biggest things I think so many of us, and I'm right at the forefront of this, we want to control everything. And it's like so much of it is out of your control. It's like, let's worry about the things that we can control. And the things that we can control let's control them and do the best we can. And then if we fail, well, that's how you end up succeeding. Anyway, you just keep learning and get better. But I don't know. It feels like there's just so much stuff we worry about that we literally can't control in life. And um, I'm learning slowly how to like be nice and okay with the stuff and don't worry about that. That'll take care of itself. Well, you know, I hear often that, you know, we all learn from our mistakes and we kind of, you know, grow and do everything and, and evolve from that. So I'm curious, um, 
since you do a lot of on-air stuff now, have you grown over the past couple seasons of doing your commentary and learn from, you know, the beginning? Did you make some mistakes and now kind of feel more comfortable with being in the booth? There's no question. I think the one part about me is I love learning. I think that's just something I really enjoy. It's like uh, almost like I want more information. I want more, you know, because it's, I, I want to be good, right? I want to be as good as I can be at this job as an analyst and a broadcaster. And a lot of that is just about knowing yourself, knowing what you've done in the past, the mistakes you've made, how to like make sure they don't happen again. And uh, sometimes you got to dig deep and be like, well, why did that happen? Is it something I thought about? Is it something I guessed on? Is it something that you didn't know was happening and then all of a sudden you got surprised because it's never happened before? It's like, it's just constant trial and error, but it's like a thought process for me that just requires an effort to wanting to improve. And if you want to do that, I think you'll always be learning and improving and getting better. It doesn't mean you're always going to be the best version of yourself each time, but over time, it's like golf. It's, it's a game of misses. It's like, are your misses huge or are they small? It's almost like your misses are, when you become great, it's like, wow, these guys, their misses are actually really good shots. So that's what you're trying to do. So it's better just to kind of nicely stay in the fairway and play it, you know, a little easy, not go too far in the rough or anything. Let me know if you figure that out. I would love to do that next time I play because I'm all over the place. I, I think my husband counts how many times he hits a house when he <laughs> plays. I'm going to use that joke. That's pretty funny. <laughs> so, you know, thinking a little bit of improvement, which teams, you know, looking as the NFL season's about to begin, um, which teams do you think might potentially have some big improvement coming their way? I think that's a great question. I think every year teams improve, don't, and you look at it, you know, from my perspective, I'm looking at the new coaching staffs that have been brought in, um, quarterbacks obviously make a major difference and there's these are all things that make you know have a major influence in winning and losing right you get a really good coach a great scheme that's coming in that's going to help the football team you get a great quarterback that's going to help the football team you have a great draft with a, a lot of high picks that you actually evaluated correctly and now you have players who are going to be able to help you you know uh, win at a very young age because they're talented and smart and um, so you look at all that stuff I think as far as what teams, I would tell you this is probably the deepest season as far as how many teams could actually be in the mix by the end. I mean, usually you can be like, okay, there's really these three teams, maybe four, that have a chance really to, to win it. And then there's always one surprising, right? I'm like, there's like eight or ten now. And a lot of that has to do with the quarterback play in the National Football League. It's deeper than it's ever been. I mean, there's 18 to 20 guys that I would be like, as an owner, as a GM, as a head coach, I'm like, I'm good with this guy. We can win. We can beat teams. Now, obviously, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, these guys are separate, and they're going to put their teams in a better position to win. But, you know, it's hard for me to give you two or three, you know, because I think there's like 10, 12 teams who could make a huge leap this year. So you're telling me that when I make my survivor pick for the first week, I, I it might just – be better to throw a dart at the at the wall and hope for the best. <laughs> the first week you always go with whoever the worst team was last year and the best team last year. You just keep going with that. That'll that'll play out. But the NFL is weird. That's going to bite you at some point because that bad team, like the Jets, 
I wouldn't be going against the Jets very quickly. They have a young quarterback who I think is really special. And it's going to take them a little time, but I think their head coach is great. I think they're going in the right direction. Uh, the Chargers have a young quarterback who's phenomenal. They're going to make a lead. Uh, those are the type of teams where you thought were no-brainers in years past, not anymore. Well, before I let you go, I know we talked about the three C's, but I'm curious, what food or snack should I be enjoying on the couch with my Corona? Ooh, that's a great one. I mean, I feel like chips are obvious, right? I mean, I feel like that's one thing. What do you like? Give me something, Christine. What's I, up? I, I like chips, but my husband pulls for the Packers. So um, we normally have sausage dip and some brats and a lot of cheese. Um, I'm, 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 my husband. I'm from Wisconsin, so <laughs> I'm talking my language now. I like that too. Another fun interview, uh, your conversation with Tony Romo. I hope everybody enjoyed that. And since we have been very interview heavy on this show, um, and in addition to our usual uh, host chat that Christine and I do, we can take the time now just to put the wraps on another episode. Um, it's been 15 episodes, Christine. Each episode, I think you learn of another button of mine to push. And I just have the same core buttons of yours to push. And I'm not actually evolving in, in finding new, uh, new points to pressure points on you. But uh, this week it was cream cheese. And you continue to be able to grow the list of things to, uh, to poke fun at me. So I, I hope you've gained some uh, valuable knowledge going forward in, in this conversation today and uh, are ready to use it accordingly as we talk in future episodes. Well, of course. And, you know, if you recall that the 15th anniversary, not that this is necessarily an anniversary, but the traditional 15th anniversary gift is crystal. So later tonight when I do uh, pour myself a glass of something, I'll go toast that I have yet another food that I can torture Brad with. And you, I don't know if people picked up on the smile that was on Christine's face <laughs> as she said that. Um <laughs> We are recording this episode on Tuesday, October 5th. Um, just minutes ago, Christine and I, who've worked together now for almost two years, both uh, at foodsided.com and on this uh, wonderful foodcast, we both came to the realization mere moments ago before hitting record on this podcast, foodcast, that Christine and I share a birthday, and that birthday happens to be October 6th. So we will commemorate the end of episode 15 of excuse me may have some more with the recognition of the fact that Christine and I are both about to turn 39 and October 6th will tie into episode 15 and 39. I'm 29. Come on. I'm younger than you. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not even, I'm, I have nothing to say. <laughs> uh, your oldest is 17. I, I, I refrain to answer that question because I don't do math. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us, everybody. This is, excuse me, may I have some more. We're the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. Uh, I am 39-year-old Brad Kramer. My co-host is 29-year-old Christine Struble. Uh, Christine, we'll do this again soon. Bye, Brad. Happy birthday. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.